1: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Uh, Feels like we're kind of right in the middle of the dead of winter with not a whole lot going on, not a whole lot to look forward to. Uh, Don't mean to bring my depressive state to all of you. It's just that the weekend is upon us and I yet again plan to be sitting on my couch, probably like all of you. Um, But we're excited. I'm excited to do the show today because we're still moving forward and COVID is not going to stop the college process. Um, today, we're going to be talking a little bit about IV extracurricular profiles. Um, that's something we've heard from a lot of you that we mentioned it in passing, but we have never really dug into. So we're going to do that today. We're also going to be talking about qualifying for in-state tuition. But before we get to either of those, um, I'm excited today to actually talk about an option we haven't really discussed very much on the show in the past, and that is how to get through college while you're working, and I have a really exciting option to share with all of you today, which is around working full-time while going to college, in essence, for free, which I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty exciting uh, in this day and age when you know you need to make money and you know you want to get your education to be able to combine the two. Sounds really appealing. Um, So I'm really excited to welcome my Bright Horizons colleague, uh, Brendan Nelson, who's an academic advisor or academic coach, sorry, um, with EdAssist, which is part of Bright Horizons. Hi, Brendan. Thanks for joining today.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
1: Absolutely. So um, EdAssist is a part of Bright Horizons, as I mentioned, and the the company works with clients all over um, the country to help them with tuition benefit programs. Um, And that's kind of what brings you to the show today. And um, so I was surprised to learn that, in fact, because we often do think that it is really difficult to have a job and go to college at the same time, but that, in fact, there are options to do that and it won't cost you anything. So can you tell us a little bit more about this?
2: Yeah, sure. So there are a lot of companies out there that have different tuition benefits for their employees. And a lot of these companies have developed partnerships with schools, um, brand name schools, uh, schools like University of Arizona, University of Maryland, uh, Penn State, where I'm from here in, the, in Pennsylvania, uh, where they set up partnerships where basically an employee, while they're working for even sometimes part-time, can also go to school part-time and have their tuition basically paid for. So they really come out of it with really no out-of-pocket cost, or at the very least it's very, very minimal. Maybe they have to pay a couple of fees or for some books, but for the most part, they can come out. Uh, with a bachelor's degree, or even like a master's degree, um, using just their company's tuition benefit and the partnership they have with some different colleges out there.
1: All right, which is kind of mind-blowing, I'll be honest, because, for example, I have a junior, and he is considering Penn State, and, Mm -hmm. you know, when I look at the cost for out-of-state, it's definitely pricey, Mm -hmm. Um, but, of course, one of the things that we'll be paying for will be the experience, if he ends up there, hasn't applied, hasn't gotten in, we don't know what's going to happen yet, but... (laughs) will be partially the experience, right? He'll be living on campus, but not everybody needs or wants that. So um, let's talk a little bit more about what does that college experience look like? Because it isn't going to be a traditional college experience.
2: Yeah, it will not be a traditional college experience. And what we're seeing more and more, especially with adult students or students that are going to college for the first time out of high school, a lot of folks are working while they're going to school. And more often than not, they're going to be doing it um, online. And most of the schools that you can think of nowadays have online programs. And that was true even before the pandemic started, right? So right. Uh, like the schools I mentioned, even Harvard University has some online programs out there now. So um, students will still be, that take advantage of these benefits are yeah, typically doing uh, classes online if they if they go to a school that is in their area. Um, mm-hmm. Then they may be able to take a class here or there on campus. But those, those types of um, classes are, can still be free and part of this benefit, whether it's online or in person. So uh, the students that we work with tend to be adult students. But again, these are kind of benefits that are open for everybody. Even if you're somebody coming out of high school and working part time, you can still be eligible for these types of benefits.
1: Right, exactly. So um, we were talking before the show. And one of the stories that I shared is my son has a friend who, at one point was thinking about going into the military now is thinking maybe that's not right for him. He doesn't love school, but he's not against going to college. But right now, all he really wants to do is get a job. And so my advice to my son when he's talking to his friend was, you know, let him know that there are some places out there that he could work and get a job as a student, a high school student, or someone without a high school degree or without a college degree um, but he could, you know, while he's working, if he decides at that point, you know, I think I'm ready. I've had a break from high school mm-hmm. for six months, whatever. At that point, he could start to pursue his degree. So what are some of the the places that are out there offering this?
2: Yeah, it's great, too, because it's really um, available for uh, people across the country. It's not just big companies. Um, yes. You don't have to necessarily live in New York or Chicago or Los Angeles. A lot of these companies that offer these benefits um, have locations throughout the country, their brand names, So places like Comcast, T-Mobile, CVS, Target, you know, the places that you go every day, the places that are hiring for all types of jobs too, um, whether it's um, in the stores, whether it's higher level positions, technical positions. Um, So really these kind of um, companies that are out there that have these partnerships, they're really located everywhere. And there's either some, even some companies that maybe you haven't heard of, but um, for example, like Medtronic, a large medical device company that has locations across the country as well. So um, a lot of a lot of well-known companies and a lot of really large companies with locations really everywhere across the country.
1: Right, which is, that's what's super exciting, right? So of the places that you just mentioned, I can think of a number of locations right here in New England um, where this student could get a job and still live at home um, and do all of those things if he wanted to. Um, he wouldn't have to move anywhere. And I think that's a really good point But, you know, if I'm listening, I'm maybe I'm skeptical and I'm thinking this feels like it's too good to be true. So how does it work that you could be going to school and it could be paid for? You know, how does that actually work and why would a company or a university agree to that?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And it's one we get a lot. Well, if we're talking to folks about these different benefits that their company offers, the one question I always get is, well, what's the catch? There's got to be a catch somewhere. Nothing, no such thing as a free lunch. Uh, And really, there is no catch. And if we really break it down, it's a benefit that really um, helps all parties involved. So obviously, the student and the employee, um, they benefit by getting basically a free education, right? Free is free, right? And that's one of the biggest burdens of completing a degree for most people uh, is that financial piece. Right. So when you take that away from it, that's one less thing to worry about, to stress about. And you can just focus on work and your education. Um, Another benefit to the colleges is that they're getting a higher quantity and quality of students. So obviously, more students will be driven to these colleges because of the benefit. That helps the schools, obviously. They're getting t- the tuition revenue from the company right. regardless. But also, too, they're getting a better quanti- or quality of students because now they're getting students that are working professionally for a diverse range of companies like I just mentioned. So um, these students are really bringing those professional experiences they have into the classroom and, and really in college you kind of learn from the, your professors, but you learn from each other too. So um, having students with such varied professional experiences really helps the colleges. Um, and then finally, these companies really benefit. I mean, they already have these tuition benefits they're paying out anyway. So if, a, if a, an employee or student decides to go to a school with one of these benefits, they're more likely to persist and complete their degree. So now these companies have a more educated workforce and quite frankly, a happier workforce, because again, financial issues in college aren't really, um, uh, as much of a concern. So really, uh, there is no catch. All all parties involved really benefit.
1: Right. Well, uh, for one, one thing that I could see would be if you are working for a company and they're paying for you to go to school, you're not probably going to leave, right? So they, right. they get the benefit of having a workforce that is loyal to them, that is going to stay for the length of time that it takes them to get their degree. Here's another thing that I think probably occurs to some people, which is well, how, how much time do I have to give them in, in, at the mm-hmm. end, right? So if I pursue an ROTC um, scholarship in college, then I owe the U.S. Right. Uh, you know, military four, five, six years when I'm done. But what you're telling me or what you've shared in the past, not necessarily the case with these companies. You don't necessarily have to give them much beyond when you, when you complete your degree.
2: Yeah, typically what we see it's only about one year. They they say that you have to stay for at least a year, which I think is you know fair. Most people are willing to do that. And quite frankly, uh, at that point by the time you're done with your degree, you might be eligible for some positions at that company. So, you know, we'll use Target, for example. Let's say you get a part-time job working as a cashier at Target. It's a great way to kind of start your career. And then um, you see that there's a management position to open up or a, a corporate position that might be opening up that requires a bachelor's degree. Well, now that you got that degree during that year yes. period where you're staying there, maybe you get that promotion and hey, you end up staying there because now you got a great job with this company. So um, so yeah, like I said, you know, um, employers do usually put at least a year on it, maybe two in some cases, but for the most part, it's nothing that they really have to have, I think uh, folks were pretty happy to to stay with their company because of the advancement opportunities.
1: Right, right. Exactly. And their goal on some level too, their goal is to just increase the number of people out there with their degrees that gives them more opportunity. I mean, it's, they're not these, I wouldn't want to argue that they're all super altruistic, but the reality is that everybody benefits from a Mm -hmm. more educated and prepared workforce. And Um, someone who worked for CVS and CVS paid for their degree might wind up at Target at some point and the Mm -hmm. reverse might happen too. Right. And then from the college's point of view, you mentioned that you've got a workforce that's coming in they're more likely to persist because the money piece is not a challenge, but then also um, I'm guessing that there is a certain expectation in terms of the grades that students earn um, for the company to agree to pay for it. Is that an accurate assessment yeah, that's
2: accurate, too. So that, that again, that's a, a good requirement that benefits everybody. I mean, if you're going to college as a student, you really want to invest in yourself and making sure you're getting grades. Um, certainly, the company doesn't want to be paying this benefit, no matter where you go, if you're going to be slacking off and not really, you know, doing what you're supposed to. And then again, from the, you know, college pers- perspective, they want, you know, quality students that are taking it seriously, if they have this benefit. But again, I think what when folks are working and getting this benefit, it, it motivates them a little bit more anyway. Um, I I went to school full time. I didn't work part time. I I probably would have um, not that I didn't work hard in college. I probably would have worked a little bit harder if I was um, also working uh, professionally and knowing that my company is uh, helping to foot the bill and that the school is also giving me a benefit. So it's a little bit of extra intrinsic motivation that I think um, helps out as well.
1: Yeah, I think so. And I I have to imagine that it does mean that you're going to be a little bit more engaged in the coursework, pay a little bit more attention to those papers. Um, Mm -hmm. Like you, I mean, I had a part time job, but it wasn't I had to earn a certain amount of money to help mm-hmm. fund um, a little piece of my college degree, sure. but it wasn't like my entire um, experience there depended on me doing well. Yeah. And you know, if your company is paying and you have a certain minimum that you have to hit, I'm sure that those those uh, students are fairly motivated and those employees are motivated. This is I'm so excited to bring this to our listeners because it is a little bit different than what we normally talk about. Anything that we didn't mention that or any other um, tips maybe about how to find out who are those companies that are offering a benefit like this?
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, if you reach out to us here at Assist, if you're... If your employer has this benefit or if you're a student working with College Coach, um, again, we're all part of Bright Horizon. So you can reach out to us here at EdiSys and we can definitely point you in the right direction in terms of what what schools are offering those types of benefits and which companies are partnering with. Um, We mentioned a few, but like I said, there's always more. We're always kind of adding more to that list as well. It's Mm -hmm. kind of uh, an ever-growing thing because they are are so popular. More and more companies want to take advantage of these types of benefits, and more and more schools want to partner with those companies. So um, reach out to us, and we can definitely help you find um, a, a good fit for you.
1: Yeah. And I would also say, you know, if there's a place, if there are some, generally it's not going to be the mom and pop shop, but, you know, if there are some better known um, chains like CVS, like Target, Mm -hmm. things like that, and you already have a a part-time job there, you might just inquire at HR, you know, do you have any of these tuition benefits? And if HR says, no, I'm not aware of what that is send them to EdAssist here at bright horizons
2: we'd be happy um, to talk to them
1: <laughs> all right brendan thanks so much for joining us today i really appreciate you sharing your insight on this and um look forward to having you back one of these days
2: definitely thank you so much thanks for having me
1: all right we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to be talking about in-state tuition and um how to make sh- how to qualify for that so don't go away
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. College admissions can be stressful.
1: out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find
0: us at Voice America TRN. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now back to the show.
1: All right, welcome back, everybody. Um, I am excited to talk about. Well, I'm excited to talk about it. Why not? <laughs> In-state tuition, woohoo! <laughs> Mostly, I'm excited to be to welcome my colleague Tara Piantanita Kelly uh, to the show. Hi, Tara. Hi. 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 So Tara is a former financial aid officer at Menlo College and Rochester Institute of Technology, among others. And as I mentioned, she works here with me at College Coach. Um, all right, Tara, first question for you is, how do you um, qualify for in-state? Seems pretty straightforward to me. If right. you live in a state, you qualify, right? Super straightforward, right? Not straightforward. <laughs> so <laughs> so the, short,
3: the short answer is yes. If the student lives in the state, they should qualify for in-state uh, tuition. But what if it's a dependent undergraduate student and their parents live out of state or one parent lives out of state yes. or you know or if their parent is one parent or the other is active duty military you know so there's lots of nuances there and and the state requirements i mean each state gets to essentially write their own requirements so if you're looking uh, or thinking about an out of state public school uh, you'll want to go onto the school's website and just do a little searching, you know, right. in-state residency requirements for in-state tuition and see what that particular state um, requires because they, they just are all over the place as far as uh, what they
1: require. Right. Okay. So first place to go is to the school's website. And then here is a question that I would guess, I know I get a lot, so I can only imagine given that you are on the finance side of things and the expert in that area. Um, and I always want to say, Wouldn't that be like problematic or difficult? But the idea that you go to a school freshman year, you live there for the year, and now suddenly you're a resident of the state and you qualify for in-state tuition. What are the chances that that happens? (laughs) Almost. None. Yeah. <laughs> so,
3: the, uh, because, I mean, if, if you think about it this way, you know, uh, in-state public schools, they offer essentially a, a big discount to their in-state residents, right? And their out-of-state residents, they pay a, a premium. So, mm-hmm. they're they're not going to make it super easy for someone to qualify for that in-state rate. Um, so, uh, most of the, the states, when they are writing these requirements, they have a few things that they look at, like, um, you know, if the student is living in the state, why are they living in the state? If, mm-hmm. if they're only living in the state to go to college, that doesn't qualify. Right. Um, also, how long have they lived in the state? It, did they just move there, you know, two weeks before the school started? Um, many states have a, a duration requirement, typically 12 months, but it doesn't have to be, um, that the student has to be living in that state, essentially as a state resident for up to a year or even more uh, before school starts. So there's that duration period. And then there's also a, a proof of residency. Can they prove that they are a state resident? Do they have a, that state's driver's license? Do mm-hmm. they, you know, have they registered to vote in that state? So no, they, they don't typically make it easy for, um, you know, dependent
1: undergraduate students to,
3: poof, get in-state residency and in-state tuition, you know, starting their sophomore year. It just generally does not work that way.
1: Right. You know, and one one thing I've heard, and again, I'm on the show, I say if I've said it uh, 10 times, I've said it a million times, um, is the whole like, I've heard that, but we do get parents who maybe say, we were thinking, you know, she doesn't want to live in the dorms, or after freshman year, she's not going to live in the dorms. So we were going to rent or even buy um, an apartment near to campus, and will not only will we be covering what she would have to do? You know, she's going to have a living situation covered, but also we're establishing residency. And I always think, "Hmm, I'm not sure that's going to do it. Um, So in the situation where maybe you purchase uh, a house or an apartment, um, that generally isn't going to be enough either, is it? Right, right. No, just just owning property in a state does not
3: make that your state of residency. They they look at domicile. What where do you actually reside? <laughs> you know, that and whether you own property and you can own property and in- 49 different states <laughs> doesn't right. mean you're a resident of that state, even right. if your kid is living in, in the, the property there. So, no, just just that strategy alone does not work for in-state residency purposes either.
1: Yeah. OK, so alright, we've established what doesn't work. Um, mm-hmm. You did mention um, what if a student has parents who live in different states? Any particular advice beyond just going to the website or is that right? well definitely go to the website because
3: again different states can have different rules but let's say for instance one state can say um any parent who lists the dependent undergraduate student as a dependent on their taxes mm-hmm. the state that that parent lives in the student can also qual- you know is technically a resident of that state because the parent claimed them on their taxes check that out that might be you know for the state that you're looking at that might work mm-hmm. um if uh if Instead, uh, the, other, the other parent who doesn't claim them on their taxes says, I provide more than 50% of that student's support. So, you know, then the student might be able to get in-state residency, you know, uh, requirements um, or tuition at that parent's state, maybe, <laughs> you know, right? Um, there's it's just, it's just kind of all, all of it. If, if this, you know, for the student or for the parent who is considered the custodial parent for that um, student the state that they live in, they might, the student might get, you know, in-state uh, tuition rates in that state. So it, it varies widely, definitely check um, the school, but those are some of, some of the common ways that, that students might qualify.
1: Okay, so let's shift gears slightly. If, you know, so we've kind of established there are different ways in which you might be considered a resident, um, but what if you know for sure, I'm not going to be considered a resident, I'm definitely out of state will you always for sure pay out of state rates or are there times where you might actually be able to get the in-state tuition, even though you are not a state resident?
3: Yeah, there, there might, there are some options. Um, there are something, there's something called a, a tuition reciprocity agreement um, mm-hmm. that some states I can go over that in a little bit. So tuition uh, check to see if your state belongs to one of the tuition reciprocity agreements. Um, there are also some border waivers. Some states offer, um, you know, contiguous states or even contiguous counties and states, uh, some in-state residency for certain colleges. So you can look into that. Um, and then a lot of times schools will have um, programs where they will waive the out-of-state uh, rates for students, you know, as a way to attract the students. So mm-hmm. there are schools that do that as well. So yep. yeah, you, there are some options.
1: Yeah, right here in university, uh, right here in New England, University of Maine will offer um, your state costs. And if you attend the University of Maine, so my son, if he was at all interested in going to Maine, which he is unfortunately not, could go to Maine and pay UMass tuition rates, um, despite the fact that obviously he it would be in Maine and he is not a Maine resident. So that's one I just know of off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah so what um talk just a little bit so in what I will mention is that we have talked about tuition reciprocity agreements on shows in the past because there are a lot of nuances to those yeah. um so if people are interested, they could check the arg- archives um and if you don't know which uh, you know how to find things in the archives, if you go to our blog blog dot getting into- getting in blog dot get dot com I got it um <laughs> and you search the blog and you, you search for tuition reciprocity, it should pull up an overview of the podcast that we did, and it will give you the date that that aired, and you can then go to Voice America and look for it there. Anyway, okay. but give us the basics of tuition reciprocity, please.
3: All right. Well, um, the, the one that I'm just most familiar with, I'll list some, you know all of them that I know of, but the one that I've worked with the most is just called the Western Undergraduate Exchange. And it is um, 15 Western states plus Guam and the Northern Marianas Islands, and they their reciprocity, so not all schools in those states uh, participate, and not all programs in every school participate, so there's some hit hit and miss there, but essentially what it says is, your student from your state can come to our state's in-state public schools, and instead of paying out-of-state prices, they will pay 150% of in-state prices, Mm -hmm. so that can be, you know, a, a pretty good discount. Yep. So if you if you live in any of those Western states, check that out. Western Undergraduate Exchange, W-E-W-U-E. Um, there's the Academic Common Market, which is for the Southern states. So if you live in any of the Southern states, look at Academic Common Market. Um, the Midwestern uh, Student Exchange, if you had to guess where that one is, <laughs> in the Midwest. Yeah. And the same for this one, the New England Regional Student Program for uh, New England State. So uh, check those out. They all... Participate differently. Um, So you'll have to to go and and see individually uh, where your state is, if they participate, and if so, how.
1: Right. And one of the things that I've noticed about a lot of them, although we can never make a blanket statement, is that often the flagship institution does not participate, right? So this is not going to be the way you can go to the University of Michigan on the cheap. Um, Very true. You know, they're not probably going to be part of it. Okay. How does that differ, tuition reciprocity, from the border waiver that you mentioned earlier?
3: Well, the the border waiver could be based on, um, like, distance. If, let's say, there's a um, college that's right on the border of of two states, um, then definitely the the students in that state qualify. But Mm -hmm. what if it's just separated by a river and, like, three miles away, you, you pay out-of-state rates at the, you know, so there's a lot of states that will have um, some kind of uh, agreement saying, you know, if you are in this contiguous state or or in this contiguous um, county in this state, or if you're within a certain number of miles from the uh, the college itself, um, mm-hmm. it could be 30 miles or, you know, it, it varies by state, but they'll say instead, you know, we will consider you you will give you in state uh, rates because you're so close.
1: Right. And that, that makes sense. Um, yep. And, uh, I, you know, it, it's making the wheels turn in my head and think, geez, mm-hmm. we're right on the border of Rhode Island. I wonder mm-hmm. if, you know, <laughs> we would qualify for anything there. Yeah. So that's interesting <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Um, what about um, maybe you've got a student who's a really great student? Um, very strong grades, really good rigor, maybe doing some interesting things outside of the classroom. Are there often in-state options for those students at out-of-state schools? Yes, they might not call it in-state rates, but essentially what they would
3: do is waive the the out-of-state. So, uh, gosh, years ago when I did the podcast on net price calculators, I ran like 40 different net price calculators using all the same information to just kind of familiarize myself. And one of the schools that I picked was the University of South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Which my, sis- my sister graduated from there. And I used, you know, my, my son's information is, you know, he was a male student from New York with like a B average. Not a great student, but a good student. And, mm-hmm. and when I ran the net price calculator there, it essentially set, waived out-of-state tuition. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, wow, I, that was, that was a surprise. I wasn't expecting that. And it might've been because, I mean, he, I didn't give him stellar grades, <laughs> in right. but it might have been for some kind of geographic diversity, you know, right. University of South Carolina pulls a lot from the Southeast, less so from the Northeast. So maybe they were thinking, well, you know, it will uh, offer this, you know, student, uh, you know, in-state rates to see
1: if we can entice them into enrolling. Right. And become maybe a little bit more national in terms of the student body represented on the campus. Yeah. I mean, you know, state schools in general are there to serve the residents of the state, but in some cases they have more spots than there are in-state students, um, or they need those out-of-state students to pay the bills a little bit. And one of the ways in which they might get more attention from those uh, all-important out-of-state students might be to start pulling Some students in from those states where they don't see students by offering them discounts. Right. So exactly. Interesting stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Anything that, you know, anything else or last minute thoughts about helping students to um, get in state pricing at out of state institutions? Uh, well,
3: they can look for legacy scholarships if you if they have a parent or someone in the family who graduated from a particular uh, public school in a different state. See if that state offers any or that school offers any legacy scholarships. Um, just regular merit scholarships at at some schools are targeted to out of state students, and then. Also, there are some very, um, even for um, out-of-state rates, there are some you know public schools that have very low prices, even for out-of-state um, tuition. So hmm. just open up a search engine and type in you know, low out-of-state tuition, and you'll have a list of schools that, you know, even if you don't get the in-state rates, the out-of-state rates are very reasonable.
1: Right. Awesome. Tara, thank you so much for joining today. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome all right well we are going to take another quick break and when we come back we're going to shift gears and we are going to talk about ivy league applicants and um, some of the students we've seen be very competitive in ivy league pools um, over the past couple of years Um, and that's because a lot of you have asked for it so you ask we aim to deliver um, and we'll be right back
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more.
1: Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter.
0: You can find us at VoiceAmericaTRN.
1: We don't talk about it all the time, but one of the things that we have talked about on the show over the course of the now almost six years that we have been on the air is um, highly selective admissions. And we talk a lot about distinguishing excellence. And when we got a question from a parent who asked, um, could you talk a little bit more about some actual students who have distinguishing excellence and what those look like? And I thought it was a great idea because um, sometimes, you know, it's hard to understand what that really is and without an illustration. And so I'm excited to welcome my colleague, Amy Alexander. Hi, Amy. Hi, Beth. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, so Amy is a former uh, admissions officer at Yale. And um, both Amy and I and all of our members of our team have worked with students who are applying to highly selective schools. We work with lots of students applying to all kinds of schools. Um, but Amy reached out to our team to kind of get a sense for, hey, what are some great examples, right, of students that we've worked with recently who have been successful and gotten into and enrolled in some IVs? So um, I guess, you know, if you had, before we dive into the examples, mm-hmm. if you had some, some characteristics that you see stand out in the students that when you get a new student and they have these things you think – okay, we're on to something here. I think this might be a student who's going to be successful. What
4: are those traits that you see? That's a great question. And really, when we share, um, you know, I got some great examples from the team. And I thought, wow, this is going to be a helpful podcast, because um so many students think oh it's test optional this year i'll just apply i might have a better right. shot it's not about that when you're looking at an ivy or a highly selective school um so for me when i think about those kids that get into those schools over and over again they have the distinguishing excellence which means they excel at something right and we're going to share examples of some specific things but for me It's not just one thing. It's usually two or three. So when you think about that, like you have someone who's an athlete or someone who's in musical theater, or someone who's a speech and debate, or a science Olympiad, or they usually also have something else. And um, it's not just that one thing. And there are few students when really push comes to shove that have that. And those are the ones that tend to get in. The other thing I repeatedly see that it is natural and easeful. Mm-hmm. These students just come at this because they do it. Either they're really good at their extracurricular activity, like a um, an academic team or a sport or a theater or singing or whatever, um, but it's not forced. It's not strategized. It's not like, oh, well, let me come up with this it just naturally evolves and they are the type of students that are motivated, self-initiative, they dive into things, they want to engage uh, at a really high and deep level. Right. And then the last thing is what I think is a huge characteristic is these students are resilient. You have a lot of kids out there that might make a mistake or might fail at something. They'll only stick with things that are comfortable or that they're pretty good at. These kids embrace failing. These Mm -hmm. kids make mistakes and it fuels them even more. It actually drives them even more uh, and makes them that much more successful. So they're really interesting and very rare kids. And that's why you have that less than 10% that kind of get in when people say, well, I don't get it. My son or daughter has the grades, the scores, they were the best in the class. Well, you don't know about all these other things, which are huge in this pool. Right,
1: exactly. And, you know, I think to be fair, it's not that these students don't necessarily get guidance or um, someone who can kind of point them in the right direction. It's more than anything, something that the student wants and not that the parent wants for the student. Right. I think that's such an important, um,
4: important part of this. But yeah. Student driven is definitely, and I, I couldn't agree more. It really, as I said, it's not forced. The parent didn't strategize with someone and people are guiding and helping. I work with students every day and help them with their resume to format it so it presents their best self is easy to read for an admissions officer. A lot of these kids have resumes that go on for pages. And I say, having worked at the Yale admissions office, I'm not going to read past like two or three, like half a page. I'm not going to read it. And you have good mm-hmm. stuff on page three. So let's condense it. I do work with these students, but it's, it's the drive and the initiative and everything comes from them. Right. Exactly. Okay. So
1: let's, let's share some examples. Um, you had a great example of a student who is
4: either currently enrolled in Brown or got into Brown. So mm-hmm. what did this student um, bring to the table? So this is a great one. She is an accomplished pianist. She won many state and national level competitions, which is tough, as we know, in music. Mm -hmm. But again, here's that second DE or Distinguishing Excellence, third place in the Massachusetts State Science Fair, third place, Mm -hmm. right? She's also leader and president of her robotics club. She ran a virtual summer camp and teaches kids to code all throughout the year. Right. Yeah. That's multiple. Yep. She's got a lot of things going on. Not, and none of these things,
1: in my opinion, are crazy unattainable things. I have a couple of examples that might feel a little like, wow, that's never going to happen. But they're attainable. Um, but at the same time, it, it did require that the student be really engaged, really involved, and really um, motivated to do the things that she did. Um, So I have a student I worked with a couple of years ago who um, is is at Harvard, but also got into Stanford. And like you were just pointing out, had two pretty big deal things. So one, he was a national champion in debate. Um, So obviously going beyond even his state level, he was literally the national champion. Um, And then in addition to that, he was also an entrepreneur. So he had created a tutoring program that he sold to some school districts in his state and also in um, another state. And so, and then he secured himself a summer internship at a venture capital firm to both learn about that world a little bit more, but also to get some assistance in developing his idea a little bit further. So he had those two really big things, um, and that was, there's no doubt that those really helped when it came to um, uh, to getting into those schools.
4: Yeah, and you raise a really good point, and we're bringing up examples, and I wanted to bring up examples that I thought were a little more attainable. Mm-hmm. You know, they are multiple things, and not every student could do this at this level. I have one girl who got into Harvard, and I'll share about her in a minute, but um These things really, a lot of people can do, right? Right. But in the past, I have a young man who got into Stanford a handful of years ago, and he was a a computer programmer, and he was, had sold one of his programs for $350,000 in high school. That's one of those things that there's, you're not going to find many kids doing that, right? Right. Right. Um, You know, I had another kid who, um, who also got into Stanford. I just happened to be bringing up Stanford, but was, one of the top lacrosse players in the country and a national top 10 debater, right? All right. You got the athlete and the academic in the debate. Those are not common. You know, having that level of skill in athletics, not everyone can just do that. You could be on a lacrosse team. So yeah, I agree. And there's one other girl who ended up going to Harvard, but also got into Stanford. Um, she was a published author. In high school uh, and already had a book out. Those are ones are a little more clear. You know, the ones I wanted to bring up are things I think a lot of you listeners, your students maybe could do. Mm -hmm. Um, But so that you understand there are students that get into these schools that have attainable, you know, DEs. Right, exactly. Exactly. And what that looks like. Um, So speaking of, um, you
1: had another young woman who was accepted to Princeton. So let's hear a little bit about her.
4: Yeah, she's a really neat one. National award-winning soprano singer, plus huge, huge, huge um, involvement in community service. She was the founder of a nonprofit connecting high schoolers to World War II vets, which stemmed from her Girl Scout Gold uh, gold Award. She won a congressional award for this honor, recognized by the Daughters of American Revolution and the Girl Scouts of America. That's a big one. That's a big one. Yeah, huge. two big ones. Two big
1: ones. <laughs> two very big ones. Um, alongside a student of uh, another student that we worked with, who um, he was admitted to both Princeton and Penn. Uh, opted to go to Penn. He went to a joint degree program at Penn uh, that is between Wharton and the College of Arts and Sciences, uh, and it's the goal is really to graduate students who the the group feels will be global leaders eventually. And mm-hmm. he was. Um, a, an American citizen who grew up in Hong Kong. He attended the. He was a major leader at his school in Hong Kong. Um, you know, president of the class. Uh, you know, and it was a very big school. And for an American student to be president of the class, kind of a big deal. Um, was a pretty talented athlete, but not at the level where you would be recruited. But he was actually um, a global traveler, and not because his family was wealthy, but because um, he qualified for this very unique program along with about six other kids, and they literally traveled um, in this huge section of the globe um, but like, you know, hiking through it and not the easy kind, you know, not like take a plane here and land and do it before <laughs> and then you take a plane here. It was kind of like living off the land traveling. And he was also fluent in Chinese and had gone, spent um, two summers in rural China, um, taking a course at one of the biggest universities in China, but then also going into rural China and um, teaching uh, English to some of the Chinese students who were there. Um, too many things actually for me to mention, but, um, you know, in and of themselves, each one of them was kind of interesting and unique, but because he had all of them, it was really, that's, I think what really made that particularly impressive was the number of things that he had managed to accomplish.
4: And that is, and you're, we're seeing now with these examples over and over again, when I sat in committee and you probably as well, Beth, Mm -hmm. you'd hear these wonderful stories or you'd see the interesting things they did, but it was these kids that got the discussion and it wasn't, you know, the one who, you know, sold a computer program for 350,000 that was pretty, and his grades were perfect and perfect SATs. That was easy. But the other ones, these are the ones we repeatedly talk about because these are the ones where these kids are not just doing one, they're doing multiple things. Well, and here's the other interesting thing. So my student that we just talked
1: about who got into Princeton and into this very difficult to get into program at Penn, it's the Huntsman program, couldn't come up with a name a minute ago. Yeah, great. um, Did not get in to Harvard or to Stanford, which were two other schools that he really was interested in. So I personally looked at his application and said, he is gonna waltz in everywhere, but he did not get into those two schools. And I think that points out something else, which is he was unique and impressive and compelling in the pools at Penn and Princeton in a way that he was not at Stanford Uh and at Harvard. I'm quite sure that they had conversations about him. I'm sure there were champions who were hoping to get him in the class at those schools because he was really impressive. But they had other choices and they made different choices. And that's another kind of wrinkle to the whole thing is when you've got all of these incredibly talented students in different applicant pools, the decisions are not going to be the same at every
4: school. And for him, they were not. And that's a really, really salient point, Beth, because it's showing you, you can have these kids that are standouts that have two, three, four DEs, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And strong grades and all of that. It's not about that. And what you know, you listeners need to understand with these kinds of universities, it's building a class. Yeah. So just because someone has all of those, they are wonderful and they probably will land at one of these, you know, mm-hmm. a selective college, if you will. But they're building a class from students all over the world. So that doesn't always get you in everywhere. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So hard to say, but true. Um, okay. You have.
1: Uh, Another Harvard example. Uh, So tell us about this student.
4: Yeah, this was one of my students this past year, and I just adored her. I mean, after we got off a session, um, I was exhausted. You know, she had so much energy, but positive energy. This young woman started and registered a nonprofit organization serving the Virginia, where she lived, Virginia and Washington, D.C. community in middle school. She Mm. started on her own. Her parents like gave her some guidance, but she did it. It was all her and she kept going all the way through high school. She fundraised for 30 scholarships for students in underserved areas in India. She organized and packed over 25,000 meals through Kids Against Hunger. She organized a huge cyber bullies seminar. She put together a health and wellness uh, fair. She coordinated and got up and spoke in front of hundreds of people at a rally to protest inhumane family separation policies, president for Student Diversity Board and the International UN Organization Foundation chapter, also founder and captain at her school of speech and debate, published articles, winner of essay competitions and speaking competitions. Right, right.
1: One thing we haven't really commented on, but I I actually do think, you know, we have mentioned, and this is another example of students excelling in a few different ways, but they're all sort of tied together, you know? So here we see a student who's clearly a a persuasive speaker, right? Mm -hmm. She's comfortable speaking to people. She is a good writer. She writes and does that well. And she, I have no doubt, used those skills to serve the underserved. So and, and a lot of the work that she did on that, on that side was about underserved students. So there thematically, it holds together. It's not like she did two incredibly disparate things really well, and they had no link between them. They were all of a piece. Um and my student who was the national debate champion and also an entrepreneur same thing right he was uh-huh. really great speaker and he could bring people into his vision and help them see it and that is what helped him to sell this tutoring program into the school districts so they do go together um even if maybe it's not super clear. One of the things we work with students on is kind of figuring that piece out, too, is how do you present this in a way so that people, they see your strengths, they see your accomplishments, and they also see how they kind of come together.
4: Yeah. Um, so. And some of the other qualities, you know, it just in, in talking about this is maturity, confidence, unafraid to take risks, putting yourself out there, you know, right. again, that failure, resiliency, and a, a lot of these, not all, but the majority of students have some compassion toward others. Help, and it could be working with the underserved or it could be tutoring, you know, other students. Mm-hmm. It could be just in the classroom. If we were to dive into, we're not talking about this today, the recommendation letters, you'd often hear this kid is often finished first and is helping the kid next to him, is right. provoking discussion and guiding people into the discussion. That's the kind of kid that we're right, talking exactly. about. And it is not because please don't
1: walk away thinking, oh, it's all about community service because right. I promise <laughs> no. you, it's not. <laughs> no. <laughs> this is the myth that will not die that you must have community service and that that's what it is because that is not the holy grail. It is more just that you have something you're excited about and you are figuring out ways to, to use that excitement positively. I, we have a colleague um, who talks about how, you know, they're looking for students who are going to change the world in whatever way that is, right? But and and more probably more to the point, they've already taken steps to make that happen.
4: Yeah, but you can in look- a small community or yep. in the broader really what you said, no matter where. But in some could be school community, could be a larger that you know whatever. Right. Yeah. Could
1: be could be done in a science lab. Could be. Mm-hmm. I mean, I read it. I remember this is already going back a long time. But when I was working at Penn, we had a student who applied who had received a scholarship from the Nobel committee. Like, not kidding. He had gotten a sixty thousand mm-hmm. dollar scholarship from Nobel based on some pri- some work that he'd done in a lab. Again, it's an extreme example. Right. But, um, you know, this these are the kinds of things that some of these students are doing. Um It is daunting to listen to this and think, wow, um, I think our hope here is not to, not to scare people. I think the idea is just to understand how it is that this great student, either that's in your home or that you know of in your school community, who is a really good kid and, and does a couple of things in school and is really beloved does well in class and does well when there is standardized testing on their standardized (laughs) tests and yet doesn't get into any of the highly selective schools. And, and the reason for that is because it goes, it just goes so far beyond that. And that's Mm -hmm. what these examples are designed to, to show. Amy, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. So welcome. Great to be here. Absolutely. And for anyone who's interested in, um, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but we blog about every podcast that we do. And so if you're curious, hey, when have they talked about distinguishing excellence in the past? When have they talked about Ivy League admissions in the past? Or when have we talked about the whole um, getting in-state tuition in the past? If you go to our blog, if you search for those pieces and we did a podcast on it, it will come up and it will tell you what the date was. And then you can go to Voice America and listen to the show. Um, All right. Very quickly. Very quickly. Uh, Next week, Sally is hosting. We're talking about affirmative action and admissions and helping you understand what that really is all about. Um, We have ideas for students applying with late applications or at this point in the process and also how to review your financial aid award award letters. And we're also here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Mm -hmm.